Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with James Bailey Blackshear, co-author with Glenn Sample Fry of the book Confederates and Comancheros, Skullduggery and Double Dealing in the Texas-New Mexico Borderlands. James, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself and maybe just a little something about Glenn as well. Uh, Yes. Well, um, for approximately 27 years, I was in the uh, real estate business and uh, retired in 2006 and went back to school, got a master's degree from the University of um, Texas A&M in commerce. And my master's thesis was on um, the Las Vegas land grant. Uh, From there, I moved on to University of North Texas at Denton, received a a PhD there, uh, made my dissertation on a a little-known fort just north of Tucumcari, New Mexico. So from that point, I began to teach uh, U.S. history at a variety of colleges in North Texas. And my wife and I purchased land in New Mexico and built a cabin there. And this also uh, boosted my interest in researching topics in that general area. Oh, that sounds like a very nice way of getting into the subject. And the fact that you're there and you're traveling through certain areas you sometimes do not know a lot about piques your interest in researching those particular areas. Mm Mm-hmm. So what was that led you to uh, co-author this book? And, 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 and how uh, did you go about dividing the labor between uh, the two of you? Well, um, as I stated, um, my interest was already there in New Mexico. And I had written a couple of books previous to Mr. Ely and, and my own uh, collaboration. And Those two books, one was from the University of uh, Oklahoma Press, and the name of that book was about this fort, Fort Bascom. Uh, Fort Bascom, uh, History of the Soldiers and Comancheros and Indians in the Canadian River Valley. And I was at a book talk, and so was Glenn. I was signing my books. He was signing his books. We got together. We talked a little bit about frontiers. We had seemed to have a lot in common. And over the next year or so, we would continue to run into each other. And then Glenn gave me a call and said, hey, let's get together and have lunch. So we did. And he uh, wanted to talk about collaborating on the borderlands, which is what uh, generally our book together is about. So we decided that we would collaborate and try to tie the Texas and New Mexico borderlands together, particularly when you talk about the 19th century uh, borderlands 
that uh, stretch approximately, oh, 300 miles wide and 600 miles long uh, between these two states. So that's what we did. And we began to research the different components of this frontier. From reading it, it sounds like it was a very challenging project because you're not talking about people who were uh, natural record keepers or who uh, you know, we're, we're talking about it in an era in which they, they may not have have you know provided quite as many documents. And yet, as you uh, demonstrate in your book, you, you can reconstruct a lot of this from court records, uh, contemporary newspaper accounts, and, and really. Uh, pr- provides for a very fascinating portrait of uh, of this region that's that's in this really interesting period of flux. Uh, that's that's uh, true, and, and certainly it was a challenge. But what's interesting about uh, researching history is, as one historian once said, written evidence is the evidence written by those that had the documents. And what we tried to do, Glenn and I, was to find the primary source documents that perhaps hadn't been used that much, but that were there. And this took us on a journey through a variety of different uh, archives in different counties in both Texas and New Mexico, from El Paso County in West Texas to Mora County in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico. And additionally, we used uh, well-used uh archives, such as the uh, Court of Claims records uh, within the National Archives, and we re-looked at the depredation claims that individuals uh, used to try and get money back from the United States government from Indian raids from the 1860s and 1870s. And so in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, someone like uh, Charles Goodnight, who was a, a Texas cattleman, was trying to get money back from the, the Comanche Indian Nation and the Navajo and the Mescillero Apaches. And they would have to go to a court proceeding where Goodnight and anyone that he brought with him would be interviewed by not only the, the persons uh, representing the Native Americans, but his own uh, lawyers. And so on the surface, you have records that note that Charles Goodnight filed a claim for, let's say, and I'm going to throw a number out off the top of my head, $100,000. But below the surface, you have several individuals that are interviewed that are supporting Goodnight and maybe detracting from Goodnight. And through those records, not the first page, but the 15 pages beneath those claims, there's a lot of information that has never been used. And so we use records like that, records that have been used before and then some that have not been used that much, like the Superintendent of Indian Affairs records within the National Archives, where you have a whole host of documents concerning Comancheros, those traders who traded with the Comanches for stolen Texas cattle. And it was all legitimized in New Mexico with official licenses. Like when you go down to the uh, automotive repair shop and get your car uh, inspected, they'll give you a stamp or a sticker you put on your car. Makes your car legit. Traders would go to Santa Fe in New Mexico and apply for and acquire a license to go and trade in what they call the Comanche country, which was Texas, to trade for stolen cattle. Everyone knew the cattle were stolen. 
And here are the records, the licenses, the applications hidden away in, in archives that no one has ever used. And we utilize those types of sources as well to put our, put our book together. It's fascinating to consider that you have this you know, legitimization or legalization of an illegal activity. That's not something that you know, seems to make sense at, at face value. I was wondering, though, if you could perhaps uh, as well explain uh, in what way or what made this a borderland. Because on the surface, it would seem as though you're talking about you're, – you're not talking about the difference between the United States and a foreign country. You're talking about – the difference between American territories and, and uh, well, in this case, uh, I, to be clear, a, 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 a state and, and a territory. And you would think that there, you're not really, there wouldn't be a borderland. And yet, as you make it very clear in your book, there very much is one. Well, what made it a borderland and what distinguished it as a borderland? Uh, borderlands are um, regions or areas, regardless of whether they're in uh, the American Southwest or between a, uh, a delineated line on the ground between the Ukraine and Poland in 1921. Whereas you have a variety of different cultures that come together on a frontier and exchange goods to create their next best opportunity. And so it doesn't matter where the line is that delineates two separate states or nations. Uh, there's a culture shatter zone between these areas. And as people trade, because many speak the same language on one side of the border, uh, it kind of makes that delineated line go away. And so on a frontier, on the edges of what you quote unquote could say is civilization, where there's not a lot of towns, you have a, 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 a place where um, activity can occur, both legal and illegal, and there are no boundaries. There are lines, there are trails, there are connections between the entities, whether they're in New Mexico and Texas or Poland and the Ukraine that tie people together. And generally that has something to do with an economy. It also has to do with culture. And so when you talk about a, a borderland, that's kind of a, an ephemeral term that, that just means an area that's almost uncontrolled because it's too far away from the centers of power. Uh, there, there are no uh, authorities in place within a borderland to gain control. And the people that live on the edges of this borderland know this. Hence, you have Comancheros that trade in the Comanche country, Texas, uh, every year, sometimes twice a year. And as we begin with the book during the Civil War period, uh, you have a lot of um, Comancheros going into Texas to trade with Comanches as they had for decades, if not centuries. And the Union Army, which controls much of West Texas, uh, the land west of the Pecos River, it, it is using the Comancheros as spies. 
to see what the Confederates are up to. So when you talk about borderlands and what are borderlands, borderlands can be any place where different cultures meet uh, in places generally distant from centers of authority or where there's kind of an uncontrollable uh, issue going on in this region. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon what was happening during the Civil War. I mean, on, on the surface, that, that's a subject that you know we, we, we know a good deal about, but we think of it very much in an Eastern term. We think about Virginia, we think about Tennessee, we think about you know the, the Potomac and Northern Virginia armies. The Civil War that you described as taking place on the Texas-New Mexico borderlands is a very different type of war. Uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon uh, who the leaders were and, and the kind of war that they were waging uh, in that area. Certainly, um, Texans, a part of the Confederacy, are going to have an impact on the eastern theater of the war in Virginia and Alabama and wherever the major uh, conflicts were. But also, a lot of Texan Confederates are a part of an invasion force that move up through San Antonio, El Paso, and the Rio Grande River into New Mexico. And their goal is to get to Colorado, uh, corner the gold mines, acquire that uh, wealth, and then turn west and capture uh, California and have a west coast port. If they were to be able to do that, that would not only give them wealth they do not have, it would also draw forces away from the east, as they would have to focus more attention on the west. So the Confederacy is going to have a major invasion into New Mexico that fails up the Rio Grande. So uh, the history, we pick up the history as the Union Army, which is in control of New Mexico and uh, West Texas, which is kind of a little known part of the history. Uh, a lot of uh, historians and, and folks that are interested in the Civil War uh, consider Texas to always be in the hands of the Confederacy until the end of the war. That was not true. Uh, General James H. Carlton of the Union Army out of Santa Fe controlled all of New Mexico, part of Arizona, and a, a large chunk of West Texas, particularly El Paso County, during the Civil War. And as a result, a lot of the Confederate uh, sympathizers from that area of Texas moved to Mexico during the war. They lived on the other side of the Rio Grande and uh, they would go back and forth. Uh, they, they have spies in place trying to check on what's going on with the Union Army in what General Union General Carlton calls Northwestern Texas, a part of his command. Uh, so there are spies in place with the Confederacy trying to see what's up with the Union Army. But also Carlton in Santa Fe is very concerned about a second invasion of New Mexico. And so he has his spies in place as well. And as, as I, I noted, uh, sometimes common churls were used as spies for the Union Army because this long-known trade, the common churro trade, is traveling back and forth to Texas once to twice a year. And he's saying, hey, while you're there, uh, any information you can give me on what the 
Confederates are up to, I'd appreciate one in particular, uh, a gentleman by the name of Henry Skillman, who had been a stage driver in West Texas and once an army scout during the Mexican War, uh, is utilized by the Confederacy to give uh, Carlton all kinds of trouble. And Carlton knows wherever Skillman is, is probably where the next Confederate invasion of New Mexico will come from. So there's a lot of focus. These are small conflicts. They're important conflicts. Nothing ever happens like Antietam in the West, west of the Mississippi River. But if the Confederates were able to gain the gold mines of Colorado and turn their focus towards the West, that could have been an important shift in the focus of of the Union Army to try and protect the California coast. So it's it's important what's going on. And and we, we try to illustrate that the history of the Southwest has not always been told in, in the light of or the context of that original invasion and the fact that the Union Army is, is always on the lookout for this next invasion. Eventually, uh, Skillman will be taken care of. It, it was fascinating to read about it because it, 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 what I... I, I under there was an undercurrent in, in, in your writing uh, of of the frustration that uh, seemed to be felt by both sides, the the leaders on both sides, be, in, in the sense that they never had the personnel uh, commensurate with the demands upon their command. Uh, you mentioned, for example, how how uh, the Union commander was uh, he he wanted to uh, you know strike into West Texas, but he never had the manpower because it was never a priority for. Uh, for, for uh, the uh, the high command in, in Washington, D.C. And at the same time, the, the, both sides are, are experiencing this frustration with not having enough people to achieve their goals. And, and, and so you have... It's not quite. It's not quite the the the, the border war that you see in in, in Missouri, uh, but it, it's 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 something else, and it, it really is fascinating how it's intertwined with the trade in, in a way that I, I find. Uh, I'm not, I'm not expert upon the the period, but I I find difficult to to uh, think about where it happened anywhere else during the Civil War. There there are some similarities between Missouri and it, there 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 are there is some violence along the Rio Grande from El Paso County in within Texas and in Mexico as Confederates go back and forth. Uh, they'll 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 cross into Texas. They will uh, hit a uh, company of Union soldiers. Uh, the Union will. Uh, complain to the Mexican president uh, of Chihuahua to do something about it. And there is a lot of frustration. And that also has to do with the fact that logistically neither side has has enough men or the supplies to make it work. And a lot of times those that are uh, benefiting the most from these frustrations are merchants and traders on both sides. Uh, interestingly enough, some of those merchants that are in uh, Texas supplying material to the uh, overstretched Union Army are from New Mexico. So certainly New Mexican merchants, both in uh, Santa Fe and Las Vegas, New Mexico, as well as in El Paso County, are trying to, to take advantage of the situation to get military contracts and grow their wealth during during the war, and will continue to do so after that war is over. I was wondering if you could 
now uh, start talking a bit about that post-war period and what uh, the ways in which the trade evolved once the conflict was over. Because even though the war is at an end and this uh, region, which was divided politically by the war, is now, again, you know, politically united, you're still talking about a, a, a borderland uh, situation in which you have different authorities and, 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 and different groups on either side. What was going on in New Mexico during this period? And, and how... And and how does this set the stage for some of the uh, famous events at the tail end of this period, such as the Lincoln County War? Well, again, you have uh, General James H. Carlton, who's in Santa Fe, the head of the Union Army throughout the war, who will remain in charge for a few years after the war. And let's just stick for a moment, still during the Civil War, as he's sending Comancheros uh, into Texas, he's also uh, trying to put down... Uh, and uh, subjugate Native Americans in New Mexico, uh, like the Navajo and the Mesquiero Apaches. And so while the, the, the conflict with uh, the United States is going on, or the con- uh, with the Confederacy, uh, also Carlton's having to deal with uh, local conflicts between New Mexicans and Native Americans. And he'll put Kit Carson, uh, Colonel Kit Carson, in charge of subjugating these Native Americans and putting them on Indian reservations. And sometimes uh, you can win the war, but you can't win uh, the peace unless you can figure out a way to uh, feed these incarcerated people who are put on these reservations. And one of the ways that Carlton determines he's going to feed the thousands of Navajo and the Mesquiero that he puts on reservations along the Pecos River at Fort Sumner and Fort Stanton is to feed them with beef, beef from Texas. So another interesting facet of, of this uh, conflict has to do with Confederate Texans beginning to sell beef to the Union Army during the conflict, which will continue <laughs> after the war. So not only will Texas cattlemen begin to reap the benefits of selling cattle to uh, James H. Carlton and the, the, the Union Army to feed Native Americans, uh, he will also be constrained by the illegalities of the Comancheros doing the same thing. Because if cattle could get to New Mexico in any form or fashion, they would be purchased. Who has the goods to make the trades with the materials that the Comanches need who are stealing these cattle? Merchants, wealthy merchants, who have made money already on the Santa Fe Trail. And there's an opportunity to make more money by trading for cattle. So so higher employees along the Pecos River and the Mora and Gallinas Rivers in New Mexico, local farmers and ranchers, to take wagons full of shirts and sugar and coffee and flour. And underneath those uh, shirts and blankets, pistols and rifles and gunpowder and whiskey. And they will travel 150 to 300 miles into what's called the Comanche country, with their uh, licenses, legal and illegal, 
and meet the Comanche at their campgrounds at Kitake and Mushake in Texas. And thousands of cattle will be exchanged to the Comancheros for shirts, flour, beef, or uh, not beef, but sugar and weapons of all sorts. And then the Comancheros will in turn herd those cattle back to Santa Fe in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and the merchants will then sell these cattle to the military. One of the uh, most interesting group of people involved in this trade, along with the Hispanic farmers and ranchers who make it happen by traveling the two to 300 miles into the Comanche country, are German butchers who operate out of uh, Santa Fe. And these butchers will uh, have the goods from merchants who they are subcontracting with, and they will trade goods uh, to the Comanches for cattle. So again, you have a legal license. These licenses and the applications will detail uh, exactly what you can take to the Comanche country to trade, uh, how many people you can take to the Comanche country, uh, what their names are and where they live, and will say absolutely nothing about what they are trading for, ever. Never on an application, never on a license. Did anybody know? Everybody knew. <laughs> it, it's interesting to read as well about how the trade didn't just benefit the Comanche in terms of providing supplies that they needed. You described how uh, the weapons they were getting were so much superior to the ones that the uh, Texas Cowboys had. So they, they were not just, uh, the, the incentive was, it wasn't just to you know, gain resources, but the uh, Comanchero uh, were you know, effectively arming the Comanche and, and, and enabling that trade to happen in the first place. Yes, and so... The Comanche, and there's a lot of historiography out there about the Comanches and their fight to remain off the reservations. And, and why did that last so long? The few, the, the couple of thousand that were able to remain off the reservations until the mid-1870s mainly, it has to do with the fact that they, they have the weapons. And where do they get the weapons? It's because they were excellent cattle herders. Not only that, they were continually raiding deep into the heart of Texas for those cattle, herding them back to their campgrounds, meeting with the butchers, meeting with the common charrows, and exchanging these stolen animals for weapons, gunpowder, whiskey. Those are the types of items that have made it into the historiography, but that's just focusing on the Ill- illegal portion of it. The legal portion of it, which goes hand in hand, has never really been focused on too much. And and we try to bring that out. So, yes, Texas Cowboys are very frustrated and they continue to get angrier and angrier. And when the frontier soldiers after the Civil War begin to focus on trying to to tamp this down, they arrest Comancheros. They bring them to justice, but they never seem to be prosecuted to any degree. This is also very frustrating for a lot of these officers in the United States Army and also the Texas cattlemen. What is going on? <laughs> I, I thought you, you, you did a great job explaining it in the book where you, you talk about both the fact that local juries are, are very unlikely to convict these 
uh, individuals. And then you also describe how the, there's this you know, political network that's involved where you have a lot of these people are, are, are connected in uh, both the Democratic and Republican parties and how uh, the, and this you know, given the, that intertwining, there, there's often it really de-incentivizes the idea of, of, of introducing law and order, regardless of who's benefiting. Yes, uh, there's been there's a lot of books written about the the so-called Indian Wars of the late 1860s, and what you know how General Sherman uh, of the United States Army is trying to put an end to the Indian raids and to a lesser extent the Comanchero trade. But it's not getting anywhere until the mid-1870s. Again, why is that? Uh, Cattle are money. Cattle are money to Texas cattlemen who are legally selling cattle to the United States Army, whether in the Civil War or afterwards. Cattle are also money to Santa Fe traders and merchants, wealthy people living in Santa Fe, and as many cattle as they can get, and they really don't care how they get them. As long as you have a bill of sale, if you're a Comanchero, and you come back into New Mexico, here's my bill of sale. All right, that's good enough for me, the merchant says. He's the one that supplied that Comanchero with all the goods that he took with Texas in the first place. So when Texas cattlemen begin to scream louder and louder, closer you get to 1870, the, the, the more these New Mexican merchants will just wave their bills of sale in the air. Well, you know, I don't know where those cattle came from, but here's how I purchased them, and I purchased them legally. Eventually, Texas cattlemen are going to get fed up with it. I was wondering if we could perhaps talk a bit more about the the response to the Texas cattlemen, because that makes up a uh, good chunk of your book. And it, it, it sounds from what you described that they were not going to find relief from uh, the uh individuals in New Mexico, even if they were members of the federal government, they, that in the end, that there was, they were not going to see uh, outside of the United States Army, any serious effort to try to tamp down to the, on that trade. So what were the Texas cattlemen then doing in response? And, and how ultimately does this trade then get shut down? Well, so yeah, part of the reason that eventually, uh, uh, wealthy cattlemen uh, like a John S. H- uh, John S. Hitson, who is from Palo Pinto County in Texas, will lead a cadre of cowboys into New Mexico to try and take his cattle back. It's because, as as you so rightly stated, um, politicians are involved in the Comanchero trade in New Mexico. So when the Comancheros are arrested, and many are by the soldiers, and it's time to go to court, behind the scenes, the district attorney. Uh, is making deals with the common Cheryls. I can get you off easy as long as I can depend on you to vote for me when I when I uh, run next year in the Territorial Congress. And that's what happens a lot. So common Cheryls that have been arrested, on the one hand, are, are being paid off by getting off with light sentences if they were to vote for certain politicians. Uh, additionally, these politicians are funded by merchants who have gained their money uh, from the illegal Comanchero trade. So people are, are really not all that inclined to, to, to do anything to disrupt this black market economy that's flourishing in the late 1860s and early 1870s when there's just an incredible demand for Texas cattle on the military bases in New Mexico and also as the railroads move east and you begin to have uh, trailheads uh, 
that if you can get this beef back to the East Coast by going to, to Kansas or points north, uh, you get them up there. So there's just a huge demand for cattle and there's not a lot of incentive to do anything about the common cheryl trade. So eventually, as the military looks the other way, uh, cattlemen like Hitson move into New Mexico, several, several hundred, as some reports indicate, split into different camps and begin to investigate uh, New Mexican ranches. And they're finding all kinds of cattle with Texas brands and they begin to take them back. And sometimes there's violence associated with these Texas cattlemen trying to take these cattle back. The Hispano ranchers go, well, here's my bill of sale. And the Texas cowboys go, well, there's the, my brand on your, on your cattle. So you've got this major incident in the early 1870s under the uh, guide of uh, a cattleman by the name of John Hitson. There's others involved. A lot of Texan cattlemen have moved to New Mexico started ranches, and have also moved into Colorado. And they become involved with Hitson as he begins to get these cattle back. One of these German butchers has a, has a, a ranch up north of Abiquiu in New Mexico, where these Texas cattlemen find over 6,000 cattle, many with their brands. And there's bloodshed uh, in a lot of these little Hispanic villages when these cowboys go in to get their cattle. So that demonstrates just how uh, personal this was. Uh, but there's also the, 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 the Comanche element that you describe, that, that uh, you and, and Glenn describe in the book. And it, it seems that that really ultimately proves the key to ending this. That, that in the end, the New Mexico ranchers are, are, and the Comancheros are not going to go and take the cattle themselves. That they, that they, uh, that that really the, the the Comanche in that respect are are the are the link that that proves the the easiest to, to break. Yes, so there there is a there is a uh, a junction of of different folks. Whether you're talking about Texas cowboy or the United States military uh, coming together at the same time. Uh, as more earnest efforts are put forth by the United States Army, particularly out of Texas, uh, the 4th Cavalry, uh, uh, Ronald McKenzie is going to lead several um, expeditions out of uh, Texas and into New Mexico, particularly when a Comanchero is arrested at one point or captured and interrogated and one way or another, they're going to get a lot of information about where the common churros live, where the water holes are, are, where their trails are, where they meet with the Comanches. And the, the Army, the 8th Cavalry, the 4th Cavalry, they're going to use that information to begin to tighten uh, their, their hold on the southern plains, particularly the Texas Panhandle, Llano, Estacado. And uh, as they begin to encircle the remaining Comanches, for a, for a point in time, they're, they're, they fight more desperately. They need more weapons. They still need food. They're not on the reservation, and the common cheryls will continue to supply that. But as the, the Texans are also in New Mexico, and there's these violent um, events that occur in these uh, beforehand sleepy New Mexican village where hundreds of Texas cattle are grazing, when that occurs, 
And the newspapers in New Mexico finally get involved in uh, bringing out how uh, this is not a victimless crime. This isn't just about uh, everybody getting wealthy in New Mexico or being able to make a living. It's about what's going on in Texas. And they begin to report on the raids, uh, the deaths, the kidnappings in Texas. So as as McKenzie and uh, patrols from the 4th and 8th Cavalry begin to uh, move in on the Comanches, the Comancheros are also beginning to get a lot more heat from uh, United States government officials and also from United States Army. Texans certainly have a lot to do with this. And so eventually when the Comanches are, you know, defeated at Paladuro Canyon uh, in the mid-1870s and forced to the reservation, that's going to dry up the majority of the demand that the Comancheros can take care of. But there's still a huge demand for cattle. So that's going to continue, but in a different way. And um, again, you're, you're going to have these military figures. You're going to have uh, politicians and New Mexican merchants all still trying to hold on to that wealth. And they begin to look to other sources uh, for these cattle. And generally, they're going to be the Texans who had moved into New Mexico. They move into Colorado and they begin to sell these same merchants cattle as the common cheryl trade dries up because the Comanches have been put on reservations. That, that's the note in which you conclude the book. And, and I really do like uh, that because it, it gets to one of the dimensions of your book, which is how you're describing in essence, a transition between one form of trade and capitalism to another form and, and how this, this evolution is taking place where this more uh, freewheeling, uh, more, uh, you know, maybe uh, criminal might be a little too blunt a way of putting it, uh, if, you know, f- phase of, of frontier capitalism is being replaced by one which is more ordered, uh, one in which certain middlemen are being cut out in favor of, of, a, of a new type of trade, which characterizes it for several decades to come. Certainly, there was a criminal element to what was going on uh, in these Texas-New Mexico borderlands. There's just no (laughs) way around it. But um, as another historian once said, you know, uh, we do not know what the folks in the 19th century didn't know. You know, you've got a Hispano rancher out around uh, Anton Chico on the Pecos River far from any urban area. And once or twice a year for the last 10 years, he's been driving a wagon for a merchant to Santa Fe. And all of a sudden, this same merchant asks him to go to the Comanche country with goods to trade once again, but this time with the Comanches. And the merchant will show him his legal pass. So local folks they're not necessarily a criminal element. They're just out looking for their next best opportunity as well. And that has to do with sometimes being involved in a legal trade and sometimes being involved in an illegal trade and really not knowing uh, when it's an illegal trade because there's so much a subterfuge, so much skullduggery going on with passes all over the place. And so the middlemen generally 
the the common cheryls, the true common cheryls, are not necessarily. I can't say that this is one hundred percent true all the time. They're not necessarily those that are involved in the in the criminal black market economy as much certainly as the merchants and the superintendent of Indian Affairs, who was also once a merchant. Uh, Felipe de Galdo, de Galdo is one of the most famous. Uh, is from one of the most famous merchant families in Santa Fe, and he's the superintendent of Indian Affairs just pumping out these legal passes all the time to his buddies. Um, so, yes, uh, there is certainly a, a transition going on. And, and, and I liken it almost to, uh, to a certain extent when you talk about a criminal element uh, to uh, Chicago and gangland activities, how one, one group is pushing out another group to get to the same action. And to a certain extent, while certainly Texans aren't all involved in a criminal activity, they want that trade. They want to eliminate the competition. And one of the major politicians that I talk about or we talk about in the book uh, has a ranch on the Pecos River. And it comes to find out that maybe his brother was involved in some of those raids. Why? You know, they're wanting to push a certain element that has had control over this trade for decades they're wanting to push them out and they want to gain control and certainly when it's all said and done the common cheryl trade is over the comanches are on the reservation cattle are still flowing into new mexico and where are they coming from they're coming from texas cattlemen that have moved to colorado and new mexico so certainly there is a transition but there's a little bit more than meets the eye going on behind the scenes that that we bring out well, we've taken a lot of our, your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I continue to look at the aspects of the people that lived on the frontier, particularly uh, along the Pecos, Gainas, the Canadian rivers uh, in New Mexico. There's just so much history there that hasn't been explored in the same way as, as uh, other parts of, of history in the, in the Southwest. So, you know, tying these documents together, as you look into these uh, uh, records of the superintendent of Indian affairs and all the documents as far as a lot, there's so much else that's there as far as the negotiations uh, between Comancheros and Comanches to retrieve uh, captured Anglo women and children, which is also to a certain extent we touch on and which illustrates how the, 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 the military had to depend on the Comancheros to help them get back captives during this entire process. So on the one hand, they would arrest common cheryls. On the other hand, they would uh, look to them to help get Anglo-American captives reliefs from the Comanches. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. So I continue to look at that, that region of the country and that part of history that has to do with uh, New Mexico to a great extent uh, as we move forward. Well, it sounds like you've uh, discovered a, a really uh, rich field that's un- underexplored, and I look forward to seeing uh, what you produce next from it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you very much, James. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too.